welcome Josh Brown. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to Big Mama Hex Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been, <laughs> you've been, you've been trying to get me on here and I've been, you know, fighting against it, I think. <laughs> I know. I'm a persistent, persnickety little lady, right? I mean, Doug will tell you, we do pretty well together because we're like in with the one, two, right? Yes, indeed. Because, right? and I don't know you personally, but you know, we follow each other on social media. I know of you very well. And also Doug, of course, is a very dear friend of mine and you're friends with Doug as well. And actually the reason that I knew you first was because I uh, redesigned the cover of Sweat, 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 Small Deitch. (laughs) Clearly a native speaker, but um, (laughs) yeah. And that was really, really fun. I was excited. Doug has just been wonderful to me since I started this exploration within my art career, but um, that's how I heard about you, Josh. So could you start there? I don't know. Yeah, let's start there. How did you end up um, being a part of that project? And can you just talk a little bit about your relationship with the language? Um, So let's see. Um, So the the textbook that I did with, um, with Doug, I don't really know how I first met Doug. Did you go to school together? No, he was at Lockheed and I was at Millersville. Um, And I want to say that he had contacted my former employer at Millersville, who was um, Richard Bean, um, who directed the Center for Pennsylvania German Studies there. And so I was working there. And I think that Doug may have contacted Dick Bean and then Dick Bean kind of, you know, connected um, Doug and I. And then... um, I went to grad school at Penn State um, a few years after that, and Doug was kind of in the area of, yes. um, of in that central Pennsylvania area. Um, and so we kind of decided that we were going to, as German teachers, we were going to kind of approach teaching Pennsylvania Dutch um, from a more modern pedagogical standpoint. And so uh, we would meet up. Um, at a cafe probably every Saturday for a while and just kind of work on chapters together and, and you know, compile the book and, and get things together. And, um, and then, and that, that's how it started. And then, you know, it's in its second, second edition. Um, Doug's been kind of, you know, revising and revamping a, a bunch of things and, and changing a bunch of things. And, so that's it's been exciting to kind of see the pro, that project kind of you know change and, and morph over the years, um, and it's also exciting that it's now you know one of a f, you know a few modern uh, more modern textbooks for for learning Pennsylvania Dutch, which is um, which is also exciting too. Um, but uh, so that's why I got to know Doug. Um, I, I do have to say he'll probably be very upset that I'm doing your podcast before his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Doug. Well, you know, I, up until June, I didn't have a full-time job. I was self-employed. So it was like more than a full-time job, you know, like I work ridiculous hours, but I was able to do so many podcasts. It really got me through like, let's say, I guess, second wave quarantine (laughs) Um, because it was so depressing, but I was like, oh, this is a great time to reach out to people and do these interviews I've wanted to do so long. And Doug actually inspired me to do a podcast because I was like, you know, this is, this is a great time to do this. This is something that I I don't know. He inspires me a lot, but he was so busy teaching that he wasn't able to do it as often, but the man gets a lot done for how much he has going on. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll send him a little apology for that. (laughs) But I'm so excited to have you on and I'll just warm you up for him. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Doug's really fun. I haven't been on his podcast yet, but I have been on his live show. um, And then I'll be on again. I don't know when, in March, I think, to talk about a book that I just put out from my thesis, which is very cool. But let's talk about you, Josh. See, this is what I, I end up going off. Um, so that's very interesting. So you're a German teacher. That's what you studied. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I love the, the book as a teacher. I'm actually an art teacher, but somebody that was trying to learn the language, I loved the book and I 
found it very different than other comparable books that were about the language. Um, it's a lot more accessible. And in fact, ooh, I, I don't know if you could hear that. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry about that. My work email is always dinging. Hang no, on. I'm, it, doesn't, it doesn't leave. <laughs> it doesn't. I know they find me everywhere I go. Um, and I'm on company time, my bad. But I'm doing my lunch now, so it's all good. Oh, um, and trust me, I give them a lot extra. Um, now I lost my train of thought. Oh, I loved it too. Um, it's very user friendly, but also teacher friendly. So as I'm the museum educator now at the Schwenkfelder, I have no idea where it's coming from now. Hold on. <laughs> it's all these different tabs. Um, what's neat about it is I wanted to start teaching Pennsylvania Dutch, which is tricky for me because I don't have the la language or the accent. So I actually asked Doug if I could use both Swetsmal Deutsch and then his videos and then give him sort of like a stipend each time I teach it. So it's been a wonderful workbook as well for teachers to use. And I know another, he advertised another person is using it as well in that kind of method. And our friend Jeff Scherer over in Oli used it as well. So it's been used very well and we both, or we appreciate both your efforts. So that's so neat. Um, so Josh, let's rewind a little bit and just talk about what, where do you, what is your connection to Pennsylvania Dutch culture and language and how did all of this root out for you? I know that you're very interested in textiles and that's sort of something that you do as well. And, and I'm very interested in learning more about that. Um, and I'm certain that Candace, our curator, will love to hear this as well. Um, she's a friend and also our curator and loves you very much. And I don't know to what extent you know each other, but she's like, oh, if Josh comes in for a tape loom, I'm so excited. So oh, yeah, yeah. Start wherever yeah, you'd like fun. to, Josh. Sure. Um, so I was raised uh, in Lehigh County. Um, I was brought up in Emmaus. And oh, um, yeah. I, I have sort of a I don't know. I was recently talking to my my siblings about this, just kind of our, our background with with Pennsylvania Dutch. And it's it's kind of immersed, but yet on the fringes, sort yeah. of. And so, you know, when I was listening to your previous podcast, I was just like, oh yeah, that's kind of my experience too. Like it's, you know, there are certain people in the culture who have this really deep upbringing in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania Dutch. And yeah. like would eat, you know, snits and gnep and would, you know, have all these superstitions that they knew and knew like folk rhyming and songs and things like that. And for me, that wasn't the case. But Pennsylvania Dutch always loomed kind of there in the household as well. Yeah. Just in little ways. So and, and that's, you know, due to a number of things. So my, my grandmother lived with us um, growing up and her mother actually died of tuberculosis when she was very young. So I think that my grandmother never really had that kind of motherly connection growing up to like cooking and, and baking and things. And so she, I think as an adult had to learn all mm. of that stuff. Um, and so she wasn't, you know, the best in kind of, you know, transmitting that on to people. And then of course my, um, my father is not Pennsylvania Dutch at all. So it was kind of a mixed household in certain ways. Um, but my grandmother spoke Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, oh, she wow. only spoke it to, uh, that I remember growing up, she, her favorite sister, who was my great aunt Eva, um, would visit and they would always talk at the dinner table in Pennsylvania Dutch with each other. And I was so fascinated by it. I was um, I was as fascinated with the fact that they were speaking this different language as much as I was in their own kind of speech patterns. So my grandmother has the, had this, you know, high-pitched kind of warbly voice. And my great aunt Eva had this like really deep, <laughs> um, <laughs> manly almost, um, kind of nasal voice and just listening to these two women with these so with these weirdly opposite tones to their speech talk in this strange language to me I was absolutely fascinated by it and um, 
So when I was younger, I had asked my grandmother if she would teach me some Pennsylvania Dutch. And she wasn't, she had no idea what to do. Um, she had kind of a, uh, there was an Amish cookbook, one of those touristy cookbooks that yes. um, yes. she had. And in the, in the center fold of it, uh, around the edges were pictures of cooking things. And then the Pennsylvania Dutch uh, was written below it. And so she went through those with me, the cooking terms. And then I made up flashcards and put them around the kitchen, oh, wow. all those sorts of things. Um, and then kind of got interested in learning, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch words for the, you know, in the kitchen and in baking and all of those things. Um, and then, uh, so that was, you know, the length, the amount of language that I had growing up. It wasn't, you know, my mother never spoke it. She was the right. youngest of 10 and she was born 10 years after <laughs> her next wow. close um her next closest sibling so um so i've always been the youngest of the youngest by far most of my aunts mm -hmm. and uncles are you know the ones that are still living are in their 80s and 90s i mean they were born um in the 1920s and 30s so I, i'm kind wow. of a generation off um but uh but that was really you know my only connection with the language growing up um nobody spoke it much at home um, except for my grandmother in those instances when she would visit with her with her sister. Um, and then later on in life, um, so when I was um, when I went to college and then I started working at the Center for Pennsylvania German Studies, um, I got really interested in learning the language and so and learning more about the culture. And so the way I learned the language was uh, bizarre, I guess. Um, so Dick Beam was putting together a dictionary project. Mm -hmm. And so he would give me a word list and I would go out to the environs of Lancaster County and kind of, you know, I would elicit the words in context from, wow. I mean, mostly we dealt with Amish and Mennonite speakers right. um, in Lancaster County. And so I would elicit kind of the words in a sentence. And that's how I learned Pennsylvania Dutch. I would, you know, ask them for the word in a sentence, and then I would write down the sentence they gave me and then translate it into English. Um, and so then I was learning the language at that time um, and kind of learning about the culture. Um, and uh, my grandmother had kind of, you know, was in the twilight of her years and, and she mm. had some, pretty significant dementia by the end. And so she would kind of switch into Pennsylvania Dutch every once in a while. Um, so that was interesting for me um, to mm -hmm. kind of you know, hear her speak Pennsylvania Dutch again and, and kind of, you know, share it with me. Um, but it was, it was a weird, I don't know, it was a strange upbringing in the language and the culture. So when I started really being interested in it, I learned most of the culture about Lancaster County and mm. not, you know, Lehigh County where I grew right. up. And then I learned most of the, the language was also kind of strange because I was so familiar with cooking terms and baking terms and things like that. And then when I started working with the Amish, you know, who are very, you know, gendered in many ways. Yes. Um, I was supposed to, you know, to be talking out in the field with about like threshers and binders and things like that. <laughs> I felt so much more comfortable in the kitchen talking yes. with about cooking terms in Pennsylvania Dutch. So <laughs> it just it kind of was this strange upbringing in the language and the culture. So, um, but all of that kind of came together and, and, um, gave me a more kind of global view, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And sort of modern as well. It's interesting too, Josh, because I really give you guys lots of flowers, the, the folks that have learned it in adulthood. Um, I know Patrick learned it in adulthood and you're telling me, and I think Ben Radar as well, um, was in uh, some of those Kutztown early classes with, uh, with um, blanking, Ed Quinter, yes. Um, okay. And I think, I think maybe Mandy Richardson also learned it as an adult and it is tough. So I tried, I gave it a good go, but I mean, I am not, I think there's different 
brains, you know, like I'm definitely a visual brained person and I love that you did it through immersion. It's really, that's the only time that I was successful with Pennsylvania Dutch was actually hearing the nuances like you were talking about. And I'm curious to know, I know my grandmother from Berks County, um, she's from Oli, she definitely had an accent. So even her English was more Dutchy than my English. And that's what I really picked up on. Um, the sing-songiness that you mentioned between the two ladies talking, I just had the little play go in my head. Um, so I'm sure your grandmother had an accent, right? She did. Um, and would, but it wasn't as thick as some of the Dutch accents that gotcha. I, um, which, I mean, it's, that's a whole so nother I, story. Yeah, there's an idea. <laughs> um, this is like a rabbit hole that, you know, linguists. Yes, yes. Um, how much time do you have, so, Josh? I know, right? Um, so there's an idea that, you know, when you lose the language, mm. you kind of really beef up the dutchiness in your voice nice. um, yeah. to show that you're a member of that community, even though you don't yeah. speak the language. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, my grandmother, I don't think she ever really felt that connected to the culture. Yeah. Um, so her language wasn't, I mean, she would, there would be, you know, times that, you know, her Dutchy accent would come through, but I never realized that she was not a native speaker of English. That would have never wow. come across yeah. my radar. Um, which is, it's very different from, you know, people in Berks County that I've yeah. kind of dealt with. And it's like, whoa, that is a Dutch accent. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, why? Yeah, <laughs> that's so interesting. So she was from Lehigh Valley, is that right? Oh, yes. okay. Lehigh County, yeah. 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 Um, I grew up in Bucks County, so Lehigh Valley is always on the brain. No, it's really interesting, too, because generationally, I know um, she might have been a little older than my grandmother, but she actually was put through speech clinics and all these different attempts when she went to college. You know, to suppress the the accent, even her English, they would really ream her out at Westchester. Um, so to see her um, using it then towards the end of her life is really pretty incredible because you figure there was a lot of shame associated. I'm sure that you're aware of that, um, you know, with the anti-German and um, anti-Deutsch speaker speaking. Um, so that's really fascinating because I think a lot of times it's not a sense of lack of pride but it was also a lot was going on that we don't even realize um things that they were trying to avoid which i think is probably why like my parents generation probably didn't really have it passed down to them i think a lot of times it was um steeped in that fear of being you know treated differently uh, because it's hard to shake your accent but that's really interesting um now, do you practice it anymore or do you, so, so let's talk a little bit. I know I wanted to get into um, sort of your, your experience as a child and, and I'm very interested in how you came to weaving, um, but let's just talk really briefly what you do now, um, you're a professor and what is it that you, that you teach? What is it that you do? So, um, so I was trained as uh, a linguistic anthropologist so I focus on language and culture. Um, and so now, um, so after I went to grad school at Penn State and got my PhD um, in that, um, I then got a job here in Wisconsin um, and I teach mostly German courses, um, okay. but I teach occasionally in uh, linguistics, uh, some linguistics courses and then in anthropology. Um, I'll teach some anthropology courses on language and culture. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm geeking out. <laughs> Let me get my plane ticket. I got some time. <laughs> yeah. So, so really I, cool. uh, so that's what I do kind of, you know, in the everyday, those are the courses that I teach. And then nice. um, in terms of my research, I do all sorts of things. So I focus on, um, uh, heritage language linguistics, so predominantly like language shift and mm. post vernacularity. So, um, language shift is when a language no longer is spoken by a community. So, I typically look at Pennsylvania Dutch and kind of what has been happening. Um, and when a language kind of uh, stops being the language for communication, 
um, mm -hmm. and takes on a more symbolic role. Yeah. Um, and so you'd be familiar with this as like the kitsch aspect, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how language is used as a commodity um, yes. and is kind of for kitsch. Um, in, Especially when you brought up the the part about the um, accent, that felt really like the work research that I had done. You're very very right about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so in linguistics, we call that kind of post vernacularity. Oh. So after after a language is no longer used um, really communicatively between yes. people, or as much as it had been, and takes on this kind of commodified symbolic role, yeah. um, then you notice things like you know, the accent and like mm -hmm. the tchotchkes with Pennsylvania Dutch terms on them. Oh and, yeah. Um, they're just so bizarre to me, but I love them. <laughs> it's such a I strange, do too. <laughs> again, it's this weird dichotomy. So yes. I, was at, I don't know where I was in Berks County and they had like a little jewelry box. Yeah. And on the top of it, it said something like, um, did it say like Kunstdeutschwitzer or something like that? It was just like written on the top. And I was in this like moment of like reality suspension, I think. <laughs> I was just like, why would that be on a jewelry box? <laughs> like, can you speak that? Why is that on a jewelry box? Like, it was the most oh bizarre. My gosh. But oh. that's the kind of thing that I'm really interested in. And Me in too. <laughs> and like Dutchified English, yes. you know, how Dutchified English is used. Um, I wrote an article recently on Dutchified English on Broadway, um, wow. so how it's used in musicals and in plays on Broadway, um, and uh, my most current research that I'm working on is in forensic linguistics, so mm -hmm. forensic linguistics is the language and the law. Um, so I've been looking at how Pennsylvania Dutch has been used in legal proceedings in Pennsylvania. Um, and there's a lot of stuff wow. that I'm doing with that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. I think people are going to freak out. That sounds so interesting. Listen, if you ever want to do, um, a lecture with us virtually, please let me know. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I'm, people would uh, love that. It's really, um, so I, I just did a presentation. I could do it for, you know, the strength level. That'd be fun. Um, for uh, looking at three different murder cases in the Pennsylvania Dutch country from the yes. 19th century and wow. seeing how language was used and how it wasn't used. And um, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's people are. To see what, what you kind of uncover. <laughs> it's neat to also find these, these, these intersections of the things that we're interested in and how they come together because we're both interested in the language, but then also there's a huge interest in um, crime TV or whatever. I, I personally, I'm such a wuss, like I can't handle it. I'm just like, no, let me be in my bubble. I know too much already. But um, I think that's really fascinating because I know something that Doug was really excited about was when on the um, insurance paperwork, you started to see, you know, the, the translation in Pennsylvania Dutch if you need a translator. And I know that was kind of neat. Um, you know, but it's it's really interesting too, Josh, because I think there's some people that are within our generation that don't want to see that or accept that the language has changed and evolved. And it's not like now that it's a commodity, it's not important. It's just it has evolved and it has changed. And and actually, I would argue that now that it's a commodity, it's actually much more um, has a lot more. Um, what's the word that I want? Um, like momentum, people are more interested because people tend to wait until something's almost disappeared to become interested. And not that they could have learned it when they didn't exist and they weren't born yet, but I just mean, I think it's also a way of sort of, um, you know, coming to terms with some of the, uh, some of the things that we talked about with uh, some of the intense prejudice against the Germans uh, when they came here. I think that there's also an effort in that, just kind of reclaiming. Um, it seems like in, in general, a lot of different, um, peoples are are very much in this generation trying to reclaim their heritage and connect to it again, even if it's been, you know, generations displaced. Um, it's really fascinating stuff, and I'm so glad you brought that up because this is an area that I have intense interest for. Like, I'm never going to learn the language, but I'm very interested in all of the things that you just talked about, um, especially the anthropology of it. And and it's just fascinating to talk to you about that and for you to touch on that. I really appreciate it because 
it's something that my book is very short and it's very sweet because I am not a scholar, please. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I had to do, I had to do, I, I had to do my MFA thesis paper and it was like, okay, this is it. So enjoy it. Cause you never get another one of these out of me. Oh my gosh. If I were to expand on it, this is an avenue that I would be very interested in expanding on with the language because, you know, there's just so much there. There's so yeah. much, there's so much, it's really fascinating. Um, yeah, there are so many people who, um, and you know, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but there are so many people like- <laughs> Oh, these, get on your soapbox, it's okay. <laughs> these language kind of fuss buckets that are out oh, there. Oh, yes, 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 who, yes. Who, who just get so cranky about, oh. you know, language changing and mm -hmm. culture changing and all these things. And it's just like, you know, thank goodness that language and culture changes. I mean, if, if it didn't, I mean, to think about it logically, if language didn't change, we would all be stuck grunting at each other, like yes. you know, proto speakers somewhere. Yeah. And if culture didn't change, we wouldn't be able to kind of be more reflective on our own culture and, and, and morph it into ways that can keep it vibrant, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you can't necessarily keep Pennsylvania Dutch vibrant and applicable to newer generations because of the way the world is changing and the way that people are changing. Um, and it might not be like, you know, your, you know, a previous generation's Pennsylvania Dutch, but their Pennsylvania Dutch was nothing like the previous generation. Right, right. And so it just, um, it, 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 it's this view that people sometimes take, this very dogmatic view that, you know, they have kind of the pure access to language and culture um, and, and ours is somehow, you know, worse or... or Bastardized, I'd say they Yeah, say. <laughs> right? Yes, it's um, and it's just like, well, well, you know what? I mean... If it keeps the, the consciousness of Pennsylvania Dutch alive, um, people are not going to be running out and learning the language and using it communicatively in our right. circles as an everyday language and teaching their children. That might happen in a few families, but it's not going to happen large scale. But if we can keep that consciousness alive, then mm -hmm. Pennsylvania Dutch will be kept alive. The idea yeah. of the language, the idea of the culture. Um, which is 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 really what um, is the most important thing I think you know for for yes. someone's own cultural awareness. Um, so yeah, I have little patience for people that get so um, dogmatically <laughs> opposed to change. I guess um, same. It's, it's inevitable, and it's 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 a, it can be a wonderful thing. I was just gonna say, and it's a good thing. And lucky for you, Josh, you're not right in the middle of it. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> we're right smack dab in the middle of it. Even even Doug is quite removed from it. Unfortunately, sometimes he'll get um, some negative stuff, which is insane because he's so um, charitable with the work that he does. But um, yeah, it's very interesting. And I learned that the hard way because you know I grew up in Bucks County, totally outside of the um, culture. And like you mentioned, there was you know little glimmers of 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 the um you know of the culture within our upbringing but it was never overt and and as you mentioned my dad come to find out was german american and welsh not pennsylvania dutch and so there was really just my mom and her mother that was my connection and it's it's really interesting though um because being an outsider and coming in with a lot of enthusiasm it's not always well received mm -hmm. and i think there's definitely this just speaking about language in general um and a lot of interesting information from Bill Donner's book, Serious Nonsense. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Yep. That's, that's a wonderful piece about it. But there's also this, this idea that comes to my mind of, you know, the Grunsel Lounges were, were originally established to sort of keep the language alive because it was forbidden, you know. But maybe there's this sort of clinging to that idea that if it's shared, it's going to be... Um, retracted again. I don't really think all the persnickety old people feel that way, but it's just a thought. Um, but I see a huge, I mean, just watching Doug's live program and stuff, I see a huge um, interest in people, maybe 30s to 40s, young 20s, 50s, really interested in having, having a, 
a familiarity with it, but not necessarily being able to speak it. But I think there's something so beautiful in it and certainly nostalgic hearing it, um, just like the food that we eat or, or, or a visual representation of folk art. It just really can bring us back. Even the kitschy stuff, really, it's like the chapter I wrote, love to hate it because we all sort of have this affinity for it without even realizing sort of maybe um, if you dig deeper, the damage these kinds of ideas could cause. But it's really, it's really fascinating stuff. And I'm so glad you're on. I'm so glad you have time for this um, because there's so many layers to this. And I do think when people say, and we'll hear this a lot, of course, everybody on the internet's an expert. So people will say, know, you know, right? you know um, they'll say the language is dying out. And it's just, you know, you get to a point where you just can't reason with unreasonable people. <laughs> but it's also just like, that's not true. It's just evolving. And really, truly, uh, when many Pennsylvania Dutch people came here, they were speaking a totally different language. So it also evolved just in that time period that they were here, right. which is really, really neat. Um, just being at the Schwenkfelder and, and reading more and learning more. Um, yeah. all, of, all of their stuff, all the hymnals were in German and it just evolved. It's very interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everybody, as you mentioned, you know, everybody has an opinion and it's sort of a, I always come to it as, you know, oh, well, it's, you know, it's interesting to hear everyone's opinions about certain things because you get to learn a little bit about, yes. you know, how people are approaching your own work. Yeah. Um, it's more of my charitable view, I guess you could say. And but, you're a teacher, too. Uh, you have right? that soft spot of, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. Yes, right. me too. Um, and, and so, I mean, Doug and I got some flack um, on the textbook. Um, we had presented it to a number of people um, at Kutztown. They kind of mm. brought together some people that were teaching, some people that were big in the culture and the language, and, and kind of, you know, we brought it, you know, a sample chapter before them, and uh, <laughs> we got considerable flack from some oh, of them. Oh, I believe it, yeah. And um, it, it helped me realize that... Um, and it wasn't just older people. I don't want to necessarily say that it's, you know, older people that are, no. are making this kind of claim on the next generation. Right. We also got it from some other people. Yeah. Um, and we got it from outsiders who mm. were kind of purists of the language, who had kind of, you know, come into Pennsylvania Dutch studies from the outside. And they kind of, I don't know, made it their mission to speak on behalf of the Pennsylvania Dutch. And so oh, uh, no. they had some problems with it. Um, younger people who said, well, my grandmother would never have used this word for that. And I'm just like, well, that's a really interesting thing, an important thing. That doesn't mean that the word that we're using didn't exist. Yeah, um, But it also doesn't mean that your word is somehow illegitimate either. Right. Um, but that's something you just gotta you, write your own book, sister. Right? You know, <laughs> write it down. Write yes. it down. That would be yes. so fascinating to keep track of these things, to write yes. it down and to, you know, uh, nothing scares me more than people that are so dogmatic about things mm. um that are kind of unwilling to to see other viewpoints and other sides of things. So um and it's it's not just, you know, one generation versus the next. Right. It's, that's very true. It's lived experiences, and I think it's just the way some people are. Um, I agree with that. Yes, indeed. No, it's just the way it is. And yeah, uh, but we did receive uh, considerable flack uh, from the community, uh, not from the learners, right? The learners have appreciated yeah. it. The teachers have appreciated it, but um, which to me is more important than anything else. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the intended audience. <laughs> yes, indeed. Appreciates it. Um, but it, it kind of, it did, you know, they did present some really important things that we changed in the second edition, right? And that's how, you know, someone's work grows and, and can be better. Um, but uh, yeah, it just, you know, life goes on, I guess. Indeed. <laughs> and, you know, that's the thing. There's, you know, within the work that I've done, there's sort of two kinds of people in your audience. There's, you know, people that were, will support you because they see that you're making this effort. Um, to contribute, right? Um, to to contribute to that not only the evolution but also keeping things alive and and showing pride in a way that's appropriate and respectful to everyone, including our ancestors and people now. Um, and then there's the people who are experts but don't actually a want to see things evolve or people to be included. They don't want the inclusivity. Um, 
or um, they're just so threatened by it, you know, because you're yeah. actually doing something like you're, and Doug is like my number one guy that I can say is always doing, 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 and just getting into action. You know, I reached out to him about helping me with Penny Olive after getting a lot of similar feedback, you know, just not, not interested. Um, and he was like, right away, of course, absolutely. Let's do it. You know, and that's the, that's the difference because, and I think it's funny because we're all teachers too. There's this idea of wanting to include people and teach people about this really special thing that we know about and we have to offer, you know, so I, I love that. That's a really good point. But I have also experienced that at Kutztown as a student, an MFA student, my friend, where I was told by the design department, not all of them, many wonderful professors there, but one in particular who was our chairperson, unfortunately, that as a Pennsylvania Dutch person herself, she did not want me specializing in this because I needed to be a global designer. And I said, listen, there's enough global designers here. This is my people and I want to offer them a service that is not necessarily readily available. I think John Bond is the other person that I can think of that is a Pennsylvania Dutch person doing graphic design in our area, right? So it was tricky and it was hard to grapple with that, Josh, because it was a, a university established <laughs> like in, like the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country um, that was giving me pushback about wanting to study this. And it's very, very interesting. And of course you work at the university level, so you understand things have changed a lot as well. Um, just in the way people study and the way things are, you know, the accessibility to free thought and discussion can sometimes become dangerous or, you know, difficult to navigate. I'm sure for a professor as well as for a student. Um, but you know, there's this power thing there, you know? So if your professor's telling you, no, absolutely not, you can't do this, and you're like, well, I need this grade because I need to move on with my life, it's right. very difficult, but I did stick my feet in because I'm stubborn as hell, and you know, it oh. took me that long, Josh, to get to that point, and I said, heck no, are you going to take me down and tell me that I shouldn't be doing this when I'm paying for this tuition? So anyway, but it's yeah. still, it still wonders me why we don't have a folk art program over there. It really, really wonders me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What's going on? I and it's it's one of those things. I mean, I, I always <laughs> tell my own students, I'm just like, if you ever are told, mm. if you're ever limited by by an educator, by someone that's teaching you, um, turn and run in the opposite direction. Yes. I mean, that is the worst thing that an educator can do is to limit <laughs> or tell somebody what they what they should be doing or what they shouldn't be doing or what they should be studying or shouldn't be studying. Um, you know, everyone has their own interests. And, and you know, if I have a student that really wants to do a final project on, on something and I'm just like, well, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, oh, there's not enough information or that's kind of a boring topic or whatever. It's just like, it's not my project, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's their project. And, you know, if we if we fail to give other people their own voice, we stifle their creativity, we stifle yeah, yeah. their expression, um, and we can end up stifling, right, the, the movement of a culture, the movement of a language, all of these things that, these creative processes that could be happening. Um, and I, I really, I think that, you know, um, people in my profession are, are are sometimes the worst at that you know we we um we kind of put forth our own agendas which is is and don't listen to the students enough which is mm. really problematic for me yeah um, and it's something that i'm constantly learning how to do i mean i i am guilty of this you know um and uh so it's something that i constantly have to work with and to work with students on and just be like okay you know Oh, that project didn't go the way I thought it would. Well, but you know, and we always want to, you know, say, oh, well, it's the students. They they didn't do enough work, or they didn't do enough work. Right. Um, but you know, <laughs> more than likely, it was my instructions, or it was was my expectations. Right. I have different expectations than they did, and you kind of have to take a step back and be a little bit more reflective with things. And um, yeah, I think you know, there's just so much that. Um, when when anybody in your life tries to limit you um, creatively or limit you um, wanting to explore something a little bit more, uh, it, it's a real problem because that's where growth happens, right? Let that yeah. person figure it out. And if they, 
you know, start doing something and they're just like, oh, no, that wasn't a good idea. Maybe the other person was correct, right? But at least they learn for themselves rather than being shut down right at, right at the start. I, I don't think that contributes to growth. I think that is really detrimental. But, yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and as you were speaking to, I think the difference between people like yourself and possibly other professors is having a mindfulness and an acknowledgement, you know, that you are, you know, trying to be cognizant of something, but some people get um, with, with all kinds of positions, they get into um, ego and um, particularly speaking about, you know, the pushback from Kutztown, you know, we, we dealt with that actually a lot. And um, at a certain point, it just became evident to me that if I removed myself from Kutztown, <laughs> like just being there, I could just remove that element of criticism constantly. Um, so, and that's what we did. And I, and I sort of went virtual and, um, you know, tended to sow and focus on the garden that was helping me grow, you know, the, the folks that were helping me grow. And, you know, people like you, Josh, who are, you know, miles and miles away from me, you know, we have this reciprocal appreciation of what each other are doing and, and it helps me grow as a person. And, you know, that's what I'm really thankful for is the internet and the ability to have access to people that are so far away, but so like-minded and to have strength in that. And I've seen some shifts happen just in the time that we've lived in Berks County um, with these power shifts in sort of this old idea of um, being stuck and being secretive and having this, like, you have to be in our club thing. And now I see it evolving and it's funny because some of the same people that felt that way have now sort of evolved based on, um, you know, being influenced by sort of our kind of movement in, in trying to make it very accessible and integrated and also um, evolving, you know? So it's really interesting to watch. It's, it's cool. It's cool to be on this when side. People, when people <laughs> mellow, it's one of those things that, you know, um, my father who was, you know, such a hardliner on so many things in a disciplinary yes. um, <laughs> In his older age, he has mellowed so much that I'm just like, <laughs> I know. And I, I, I love it. I welcome it. And it's just like, because I think people get to a point in their lives when they realize, you know, it's not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth being such a, a curmudgeon. <laughs> and honestly, you're so right, Josh. And the other thing is too, is like, didn't COVID like take us all down a bunch of notches? Like, listen, all the celebrities and all the very important people still were at just as much risk and still had to deal with all the same things that we were all dealing with. And I really think it kind of leveled everything out for a time, <laughs> for right? a time, for a time. But I don't know what it's like there, but here in Berks County, it's another level. And I'm just like, yeah. Listen, I'm from the suburbs of Philadelphia. This is not working for me. It's <laughs> like this imagination of, you know, anti-masking, anti-vaxxing is not working for me. This is not uh, on my brand, Josh. I'm not. It's, not it's, yeah. it's crazy. I, I mean, I, I'm far away um, from, <laughs> from the homeland, I guess you could yes. say. Um, and I would, I would absolutely, you know, give my right arm to be back in Pennsylvania. I mean, I would absolutely love that if the right opportunity came back. Um, there, there's something about it, they're the rhythms, right? Mm, of, mm -hmm. of the rural areas <laughs> of mm -hmm. the Dutch country that yeah. just they speak to me and the landscape mm. and the, uh, the people. And it's just, it's, um, I don't know, maybe I'm mellowing too in my older age, but um, it's it's one of those things that, you know, just tugs at you a little bit more yes. as you get older. Um, yes, yes. So I, I hope to be not so distant. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too, because you're you're just so wonderful and I'd love to meet you in person sometime. Um, and, and just have your energy in our area would be really lovely. Um, but yeah, I it's funny you called it the homeland because I always think, of it that way too is my husband always sort of goes back to Germany and I always say you know I don't really feel that connection you know to Germany as much as I do to Pennsylvania um and it's really interesting as well to think about that and definitely feeling like a palpable pull when you're in your area that your ancestors are from I know when I visit Oli it's just a whole experience for me it's really interesting yeah. um yeah 
Oh boy. I hope that opportunity comes. (laughs) I lived in Germany for a long time and Did you? I did. And and it it didn't it never felt like home. It never felt like a homecoming. I never felt like, oh, I'm going back to the place my ancestors are from. It it didn't it never felt like that because the Germans are very different. I mean they're you know, very different than the Pennsylvania Dutch. They're very different. And um there's just a so for me, I was just kind of like, no, this doesn't feel like uh, the homeland, I guess. Right, right. Uh, whereas, you know, when I go back to Pennsylvania and just driving around on back yeah. roads, it just feels more familiar, more comfortable. Yeah. Um, and so, and, you know, it's sad, but I mean, I've been in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin now for 11 years and wow. it does not feel like home. I can yeah. have a house here and I have, you know, friends and my cats are here, but um, <laughs> it doesn't feel, it still doesn't feel like home, home, Yeah. Uh, which I don't know if that's unique to the Pennsylvania Dutch country, but, um, but there's a different feeling that you get when yeah. you go back. Um, yeah, to for sure. And it's, it's a feeling that I get whether I'm in Berks County or whether I'm in Lehigh County or you know, wherever in the Dutch country, you know, when you're there and you know, when you leave there, um, it's, it's one of those subtle differences that kind of, you know, are there if you pay attention to it. Yeah. If you, yeah. And of course this goes back to the mindfulness. Like, are you open to it? The feeling those shifts. Yeah. It's very, very true. That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm definitely pulled more to going to Wales than I am to Germany. I'm just not really that interested, but, um, that that just feels more of a connectedness. So before we go, I definitely want to touch on, like I mentioned, um, textiles and also weaving and bullfrog in textiles. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, so I have been doing fiber work since, oh my goodness. I don't know, probably since grad school, um, because I wanted a way of, doing different things. I wanted, I was writing my dissertation and that's a lot of staring at the screen and, mm. and writing away and reading articles and, and doing all that stuff. And I needed something to pull myself away from that. And so I did two very different things. I, um, I trained as a CNA <laughs> um, because I, I realized that I had been in, at Penn State for at that point, seven years. and um, I didn't know any people from central Pennsylvania. Like I was associated with the university because it was like a bubble. And so I trained as a CNA and worked at the colonoscopy endoscopy unit at the hospital, um, which was an exciting, you know, way to meet local central Pennsylvanians. And then the other thing that I did was to do um, textile art type things. And so I first got into knitting. Um, I taught myself how to knit. Uh, and then just kind of worked from there. And then, you know, eventually I'm, I'm the type of person that I like to, you know, have the start with the basics and kind mm-hmm. of go from there and watch the evolution of a project. So for me, it's very much about process and not about product necessarily. Yes. Yeah. Um, which probably isn't an economical decision, right? Because, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a selfish decision because I'm the only one that gets to experience the process. Um, <laughs> and I might not produce as much as would be economically viable, but you know, whatever, it is what it is. <laughs> Everyone's a snowflake. So, um, so I, uh, I then got interested in, you know, well, I could, you know, spin my own wool into yarn. And so then I started spinning wool. And then I thought, well, you know, if I'm just spinning this wool, it's it's all natural colors. So maybe I want to start dyeing my own wool. And then I thought, well, I'm not really into, you know, dyeing acid dyes and mm, using yeah. type things. So I got fascinated with natural dyes. And then I thought, you know, when I moved to Wisconsin by that point, I was just like, well, you know. I could grow these natural dyes myself. Yes. And so I started, you know, planting a dye garden every year and would harvest the dye garden stuff. And then, you know, eventually I was just like, no, I'm, not, I'm 
don't have room for sheep, but I have room for flax. And so I started growing my own flax and, and making my own linen and things. Um, and then I was just like, you know, knitting is knitting, whatever, but I really want to learn how to weave. And so I started learning how to weave. And um, uh, so I got a loom uh, very cheaply on Craigslist, um, an old, very old um, floor loom that is indestructible and um, very clunky and large and problematic in many ways. But, um, you know, we kind of, we work with each other. <laughs> and, um, so I learned how to, I learned how to weave. And, um, yeah, just kind of has kind of progressed like that over the years, my interest in learning a lot more. And what I found is that by, by doing those things, by growing my own flax, by dyeing my own, my fibers, you know, with natural fiber dyes and things like that, and then learning how to weave, I've started learning so much about the culture. So like the traditional kind of, you know, fibers that the Pennsylvania Dutch would have used and the designs and the motifs and things. Um, it hasn't been just limited to Pennsylvania Dutch. I've done a number of Scandinavian things that I find, you know, equally fascinating. Yes. But uh, yeah, and so then I decided this year that I was going to start to maybe think of selling my things um, to the wider public. Um, and as you know, the eternal teacher that I am, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I was more interested in just kind of sharing information about the textiles and the process and all of that. So, um, so I created this this bullfrog in textiles, um, and uh, you know, I'm not selling anything now, but maybe by next Christmas I will be. Um, mm. But. For me, my, my main focus now is to kind of create more things and then to use kind of social media, whether that's through the, the website or through Instagram, and kind of showing people the wide variety that there is to textile art in the Pennsylvania Dutch country and um, all the different things that you can that you can see from it and and using the traditional methods and things like that. Um, and it's, it's again, one of those tensiony things. So, you know, I was up on my soapbox earlier talking about, you know, how people get so cranky about things. Yes. But I find myself, I, my, I am guilty of this as well. You know, um, I get cranky <laughs> as well about things because I'm so invested in these traditional methods, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I insist that I use hand-dyed um, natural dye fiber for embroidery and that I always use linen that I stitch on because that would have been the more traditional object. But I think about it and then I sit back and I think and I'm just like, no, wait a minute, Josh. <laughs> you can stitch on other things. And as a matter of fact, for how frugal the Pennsylvania Dutch are, <laughs> yes. they stitch on linen because linen was cheaper and more plentiful in the Pennsylvania Dutch country. Today, cotton is cheaper. I mean, linen mm -hmm. is so expensive. I know. Like, if, the, if those same Pennsylvania Dutch were here today, they'd be stitching on cotton. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But I, but I find myself being that cranky curmudgeon. <laughs> where oh, I'm for like, sure. Oh, no, like the feel of linen is just so much better in the hand. And, you know, I go completely <laughs> against my own ideas all the time. And it's just oh. the way to you know, people are problematic. Don't we all? Oh, for sure. And it's so, it's so true. It's funny, but you catch it, you know, cause I do it too. I'll see people, I guess you follow a hashtag or whatever on, on, um, on Instagram and I'll see people doing hex signs in a totally different way, especially like yeah. only digital. And it's like, part of me is like, you know, <laughs> and it's just, but wait a second, Rachel, like a few years ago, people were giving you a hard time about this because you weren't using paper for fractor. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting yeah. how you end up in the same shoes that you were fighting before sometimes, but we're both aware of it and we're doing our best to tone I that mean, down. Yes. To be reflective yes. on our own actions, Indeed. but I still, you know, I still have a hard line on my linen. And <laughs> right. And that's the thing, the way you're describing it, it's like your personal choice for, for when you're doing it. And really it's a balance in your life because you're a professor and you do a lot of work on screen and it's something that you can do 
that's hand done. And, and I always feel um, as things get ramped up with my job and everything, I spend a lot of time on screen. I always feel I need to paint just to feel sane, you know, and, right. and there needs to be that balance. So I think it also just makes sense for you, you know, yeah. but you've got, have you been to the Shrine Clutter? You've got to come over. I have. So, um, new exhibit. Interesting. What? What? The new exhibits you're just going to, if you're in the area still, you're going to freak out. We have, we have oh. like all of, all of the flax and it goes through how it's made into, um, thread. You would love, there, there's new oh, exhibits that opened last year. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Has yes. Candace, Candace was going to do something about silk. Um, I don't know. I have to ask her. Who wrote a book on silk manufacturing in Pennsylvania. She was going to like do some kind of exhibit type thing. And silk oh. is just a bizarre thing to Yes. Right. I, I did silk before, like taking the cocoons and boiling the cocoons, and I'll never do that again. It was just a very gross, gross activity to do. But um I have been to the Schwenkfelder. Um I one of when I was in maybe 18 or so, um I would go to um the Schwenkfelder to the uh uh, to their kind of brown bag lunches and things. Oh, yes, yes. Um, and so I heard a number of talks from Alan Niemeyer. Oh, nice. Yes. Um, who is still there. Is he still there? Yes, he is. He yeah. is indeed, yes. Yeah. Um, and he would give a few talks. And um, my, one of my aunts, um, so my mother's oldest sister, um, mm -hmm. my aunt Pearl, she had 10 kids. Um, and they are the only branch of the family who attended. Oh, um, kids, no. <laughs> no, I know they're the only branch of the family who attended uh, the Palm Schwenkfelder Church. Oh, sure. So, and her son, Fred Grader, uh, worked at the Schwenkfelder for oh, wow. a really long time. Um, and he was one of these, you know, he was a, a Schwenkfelder historian and things like that. Um, and, but I haven't been back. <laughs> Since well, then. if you have time, you've got to come over. I drive by all the time because, you do. well, because um, at the time uh, yes. when I was in high school, I think it was, and after work, it would just be like, "All right, we have to go." I can't remember what time I ended work at the Weiss Deli. I worked at the Weiss Deli. Oh wow! Uh, and uh, we had to like make it like done it quick down Route 100 to get to the Dairy Queen in Pen is it in Pensburg? Pensburg, yes. yes. Yes, it is. Okay. So we had to get to the Dairy Queen in Pensburg because that was the closest <laughs> Dairy Queen does. Um so I was constantly, you know, hitting that Palm Hereford corridor. Yes. Oh, I love that area so much. No, you've got to come when you have time and I know you're a very busy person, but um our new exhibition spaces are just beautiful and tell a beautiful story the way that Candace designed it. It's just it's just wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. You would really enjoy it, Josh. If you have some time, get get over there. And then, you know, we have the Pen Dry Goods Market as well, which is really neat oh, and you may be interested okay. in. Um, absolutely, but enough about that. <laughs> uh, Josh, I just want to thank you. We're at our hour. Um, I really appreciate you coming and joining me so much. I know that you're very busy and I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with me. It was so nice to sit with you, even if it's virtually and get a sense of who you are, which I had um, already decided that I loved you and you were wonderful. But now that I got to actually speak with you, it was so much fun. And please let us know how we can, well, I'll link everything. I'll link your um, Bullfrog textiles, but Bullfrog in textiles, I apologize. Is there any other way that people can access the, the stuff that you've written? I know you were part of that Pennsylvania Dutch Dictionary uh, yeah. book so, as well, right? I, mean, I have an academic website. It's just Joshua, oh, wonderful. joshuarbrown.com. Oh, um, it's my academic website, um, if people are interested about that. And so most of, if an article is available online, I have that kind of linked. Um, oh, but I have a list of, of publications and things that people can um, can access. And my email is there, of course. And, Perfect. Uh, That's wonderful. And then, of course, Schwetz, there I go again. Schwetzmaldeich is available uh -huh. at Mastoff and online. Our buddies over there at Mastoff. And um, do you think you and Doug are going to be doing any follow-ups? Or is it just kind of evolving in the edition? I don't know. I've been so removed from the Pennsylvania yes. pedagogy world. 
Yeah. Um, and and Doug has gone, you know, beyond and above and and uh, that, you know, maybe he'll he'll come up with a third edition. It'll just be Maddenford's <laughs> which is fine by me. I mean, he's doing, I mean, he's been in the trenches doing this stuff. So, yeah. Uh, and he but, never stops. He just keeps going right? and going and going. Right. Yeah. But I mean, there is the need for the kind of the audiovisual. Yeah. For yes, different for sure. learners. And, right. Which is uh, why I thank you for sitting down with me. This will be lovely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Josh, and have wonderful holidays. Thanks, you and too. stay safe and keep on doing what you do and enjoying that hand done persnickety aspect <laughs> of, the, of the needlework. It's so cool. We have so many samplers in our collection. It's just mind boggling, oh. but I love the work that you've done and I'm excited to see how it goes for you. All right. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Josh. Take care. Bye. Max good. Max good. Thank you.